the opportunities for technology transfer from this mission to go to the moon and Mars and grow plants for human life support. You go to the moon and Mars, you can't throw anything away. We don't know how to do that yet. Learning how to do it in space will definitely improve our chances of managing uh, ecological contexts here on Earth. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello and welcome to The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm going to be interviewing a, a guest to discuss bioregenerative life support systems. And that's basically the use of plants to support life in space. You may remember this from the movie The Martian by Matt Damon, where he grew potatoes from his own poop to survive. Now, this isn't exactly what our guest does, um, but he's been a leader in Canada, and we go way back. Uh, this is something that I've also been involved with, and it's a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to bringing it to you. Before we get into the interview, I've got a little bit of news for my listeners. I'm starting a Facebook discussion group. I'd like to get some more interaction, get some input from my listeners, maybe some ideas on new podcasts, um, talk to you. It's going to be called The Rational View on facebook.com slash groups slash The Rational View, all one word. And I'm going to be opening it on Pi Day, March 14th, 2021. So if you uh, request to join this group by Pi Day, I'm going to include you in a draw for my new swag, some Rational View t-shirts are going to be available. So please join my group. I'm going to give it a, a t-shirt to one lucky uh, group member. And I'm going to hold the Facebook Live as part of my grand opening. So I'm going to talk to you, everyone who's in the group. I'm going to go live on Pi Day at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. And we'll chat. Uh, see if you guys have any questions. Uh, it'll be pretty informal and uh, maybe we'll be able to speak. So thank you for listening and back to the interview. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please press like, please share it with your friends. I appreciate you listening and I hope you enjoy this. Dr. Mike Dixon is a professor in the School of Environmental Sciences and director of the Controlled Environment Systems Research Facility, University of Guelph. He served as the chair of the Department of Environmental Biology from 2003 to 2008. Professor Dixon joined the university as an NSERC University Research Fellow after earning his PhD from Edinburgh University in Scotland and holding a postdoctoral position at the University of Toronto. As project leader for the Canadian research team investigating the contrib contributions to plants to life support in space, Professor Dixon formed the Space and Advanced Life Support Agriculture, or SALSA, program at the University of Guelph. This program currently represents Canada's main contribution to the international space science objectives in biological life support and collaborates with NASA and the Canadian and European space agencies. Professor Dixon's CESRF facility is among the world's leading research venues for technology developments and research dedicated to studying plant and microbial interactions in advanced life support systems. The technical pull of space exploration has aided the development of a wide range of technologies that have spun off into applications in terrestrial agri-food sectors and most notably 
the phytopharmaceutical sector in recent years. Thanks for coming on the show, and welcome to The Rational View. Well, thanks, Al, and uh, it's good to see you again. So, in addition to your extensive professional accolades, I happen to know that you are also famous for your extensive collection of single malt scotch, of which I've had the distinct pleasure to partake on more than one occasion. That's right. Uh, I, I guess I'm probably in the neighborhood of about 300 different single malts in the, in the scotch bar in the basement. And uh, yeah, it's that that venue, as you know, has been the uh, been the place where a lot of Canada's participation in space science has taken place. <laughs> indeed, indeed, and and quite a good venue it is. Thank you. <laughs> oh, by the way, I'm. On February 20th, uh, we'll be launching uh, barley seeds to the International Space Station, and they will live on the Missy platform. Alpha Space is, uh, has taken care of that for us. And uh, so we have a project which is uh, sponsored by our good friends in Scotland at the Glenlivet Distillery. Wow. So they're sending up seeds to the ISS. That's right. We'll, we're putting that. This is kind of one of those little incremental steps that we're taking uh, in in biological life support, uh, plants in space, food life support, etc. Uh, we want to see what extremes our seeds, the the engines of our life support, ultimately, uh, what kind of extremes uh, those seeds can undergo and still come out swinging at the other side. And we've been, as you know, with the tomato sphere project for the last 20 years, we've been sending tomato seeds into space to the ISS uh, and, and they come back and school kids across Canada do uh, do germination trials and over the last 20 years we've discovered that anything up to I guess 19 months on the International Space Station has no negative no significantly negative effect on the germination potential of tomato seeds but this will be the first time we put seeds outside the ISS on the Missy platform which exposes it to the extreme vacuum and temperature swings of outer space. Not to mention the radiation. Exactly. The, the NASA uh, has also a project, uh, you know, biological payloads on the Missy platform are, are rare. Uh, in fact, I think these may be the few. Uh, the, the Tomato Sphere project put some tomato seeds on the Missy platform uh, last year, and they have just returned and uh, I'll be doing germination tests on them uh, as soon as we figure out how to get them across the border. <laughs> <laughs> now, that, that tomato sphere project has been highly successful. That, that's a great outreach uh, for, for space exploration and, and agriculture. Oh yeah, it's, and it's been fun. I mean, it's been a hoot for the last 20 years. Bob Thursk and I and Ron Thorpe from uh, who used to be the uh, the head of the the CEO of the uh, Mark Garneau Collegiate Institute in Toronto? The three of us sort of dreamed this up back in the late uh, 90s, and then in 2000 sent a package of seeds up with Mark Garneau on his last uh, shuttle mission, and so he uh, he brought them back after they went around the world with him a few times in the shuttle, uh, and since then we've had a few ISS missions, payloads, and now we routinely go up uh, 
on on SpaceX um, or in the Dragon or you know any number of different options we have now. Uh, Blue Blue Origin has has taken our seats up just recently as well, just to low Earth orbit. Uh, so. It's been, and we've hit over 4 million students across North America in the last 20 years. So as a science education and outreach element of our program at Guelph, it's been remarkable. Yeah, I've actually uh, been a, a, a mentor in the, in the Tomato Sphere program for a, for a class that my daughter was in, actually. And so they get these seeds that have been up in the space station and they plant them and they measure the growth of the tomatoes against a control set of tomatoes and report the results and learn how to do science. It's really a, a an excellent program. Yeah, it, it covers the waterfront in plant science, space science, uh, nutrition science. There's there's And just the scientific method. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very important. STEM coverage, you know, science, technology, etc., um, is handled very nicely with that one simple experiment. So let's step back a bit and, and can you maybe describe for our listeners what is advanced life support agriculture? What does this entail? Well, food, as you know, uh, is, is limits how far from Earth we can go and how long we can stay. So it is the main driving variable in human space exploration. Uh, if you saw the Martian, you saw Matt Damon sitting there doing his arithmetic on the, on the potatoes and how long that source of nourishment would sustain him. And, and that arithmetic is exactly what we do. Uh, variations on it and, and developing the technology and arriving at the, the research questions that, that we ponder in trying to see how long and how successfully we can have plants providing all the functions of human life support. So your program is basically the science behind Matt Damon's The Martian movie. Well, the, the science was originally the, the NASA's BVAD, uh, Basic Values and Assumptions document, um, which has recently been updated. So they were basing it on some relatively old uh, arithmetic. But fundamentally, the, the, the Martian actually had some of the most reliable science of any of the science fiction movies of late. Well, ex except for the wind. Um, they have that that force of wind at, at an average atmospheric pressure of 0.6 kilopascals. Uh, you know, just to mess my hair, it'd have to be a couple, <laughs> couple hundred miles an hour. So um, that, that was a little bit of a stretch. But hey, we give Hollywood their leeway. So, Mike, you and I wrote a roadmap for the Canadian Space Agency to develop a greenhouse on the moon. In the early part of this decade, the CSA had just put a robotic arm, or I guess the, this millennium, <laughs> the CSA had put a robotic arm on the International Space Station, and they were hosting a series of workshops on what should be the next big thing in Canadian space exploration. And I remember at one of these workshops, you made a very convincing case that growing plants in space could be an ambitious cross-disciplinary Canadian niche in space exploration. And I was, I was struck by how important this research seemed because of its potential for dual use. Could you describe why this project is such a great story for Canada? Well, it, it was at that time. You're, you're recalling, uh, you know, a, a brief spike in the interest of the Canadian Space Agency in, uh, in the life support 
agenda, you know, biological systems, plants in space, etc. And and you're right, we did we did generate quite a bit of interest. I recall you and I went to Russia at one point at a, at a high point in that. Uh, and, and that was the last high point, as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, it, I mean, it, Canada comes by its ownership of some leadership in this, in this arena, uh, quite honestly, because we are, you know, a pretty miserable place. I'm looking out the window now at, you know, two or three feet of snow in my front yard. And, and we, we grow plants under these conditions. And Canada's north is... Uh, you know, the, the next worst thing from the surface of the moon in terms of a harsh environment to try and grow plants. And we're, we're pursuing that agenda with the technology transfer of our program at Guelph <clears throat> to address food security in the north and indeed food security in other harsh climates on the planet, uh, such as the deserts of the Middle East. Um, so there, there's a great deal of opportunity for taking the technical pull of going to space and solving the, the problems of recycling and just uh, production and, and uh, maintaining a reliable life support machine. There's such an opportunity to transfer that technology to terrestrial agri-food sectors. And that's what our industry partners are all about. Yeah, I remember we actually went up to Yellowknife as well uh, to try to develop a collaborative project to provide critical infrastructure for remote northern communities that are typically, uh, they get their food shipped in from Mexico. There were a lot of challenges, as I recall, with setting this up. And we had a study with the Aurora Research Institute to show that it seemed like it was commercially feasible to actually grow in situ these high nutritional value uh, plants like strawberries and tomatoes and I was doing the engineering work and your group was looking at the horticultural processes. And the biggest technical hurdles for these small communities was the power and the power for heating and lights. Uh, many of these places just run on diesel fuel uh, when it's cold and dark out there. Um, now, this, this ties into another interest of mine, which is nuclear power as the solution for all of our ills and you know small modular reactors would be a key technology to support uh, food production systems and you're right i mean if you have to grow your tomatoes in a snowbank in Yellowknife using diesel power then you may as well continue to air freight them in from mexico because uh, the cost benefit is questionable uh, however, as we learned and in our work and in that project, we had the Arctic Energy Alliance as one of our partners as well. And, uh, and, and they made it clear that you needed to solve the energy problem, the energy supply issue with multiple forms of alternative energy, uh, hydro, um, and, and you needed to get the buy-in of the, the local governments basically to offset uh, you know, extraordinarily high energy uh, bills in that part of the world. So if you if you have uh, multiple sources of alternative energy like wind and solar, um, and and then hydroelectric power of which there is some in in various areas of the of the north, um, but then you need special deals with the with the power generating uh, institutions to help you establish the horticultural. Uh, entrepreneurs in in that sector you know you need about 10 years of sweetheart deals with energy to, to really get it off the ground and establish 
the, the background, the technical support backdrop against which these kinds of industries need to be, you know, there isn't a home hardware store down the street that you can rely on. So <clears throat> it's, a, it's a challenge. And uh, you, you mentioned that roadmap for putting plants on the moon. Uh, I had occasion to revisit that documentation recently, and uh, you and I served on on the uh, uh, on the Advanced Life Support Working Group for the space the CSA back in that at that time, and I revisited that because we were in the process of making a, a proposal for a phase zero study at the Canadian Space Agency to do exactly that again. You know, it, it, this whole. Uh, the, the, the life support and plant biology in space and the recognition that food drives the equation and we have the technology and expertise in Canada to address harsh environment uh, food production. And so exploiting that community and addressing the technical challenges in space is, is now back on my near horizon and uh, in, in collaboration with Canadensis, I don't know if this is supposed to be a secret or not, but uh, in collaboration with, with Canadensis, uh, we have a, a phase zero project uh, assigned by, uh, by the Canadian Space Agency to design the next system, you know, to put a system on a lander on the moon to start making those incremental steps that must be taken uh, to advance biological life support. And the science behind this is is quite interesting. I think it's, for one of the reasons I got involved with this is because I could see the importance of this from an ecological standpoint. Um, you know, we don't know what the minimum uh, system is to sustain human life. We don't know the ecological carrying capacity of the earth. We can't yet build an enclosed ecosystem that survives on its own with people in it indefinitely. We don't know how to close that loop yet. The earth does it. We know that a system the size of the earth is able to recycle all the nutrients in whatever time scale it takes for all the nitrates and all of the ions that we need to be recycled from our poop basically back into plants and, and continue supporting life seemingly indefinitely. But we don't know what is this what is the carrying capacity? And this has a lot of, I think, feedback in terms of, of you know, population density and sustainability. So the science that you're looking at is not only key for, for surviving in space, it's also key for surviving here on Earth. Exactly right. The, the, the opportunities for technology transfer from this mission to go to the moon and Mars and grow plants for human life support. You go to the moon and Mars, you can't throw anything away. There is no such thing as waste. You must recycle all the water, all the carbon, all the nitrates, all of the ions, as you mentioned. So we don't know how to do that yet. Uh, sensor technology is, is part of the issue, uh, but we cannot, as you say, maintain a sustainable kind of uh, bioregenerative, uh, self-sustaining uh, life support system in that way. And uh, learning how to do it in space will definitely improve our chances of managing uh, ecological contexts here on Earth. We did some work some years ago with one of my grad students, Jeff Waters, and uh, worked with some with uh, Gene Hunter from Cornell, a nutrition specialist, and we developed a menu 
a, a nutritious, well-balanced vegetarian menu uh, with, with a 10-day menu cycle and a crew of six or eight, as I recall, and determined, okay, so you have to have uh, this, this, these many commodities on your plate and it takes this much space to grow that. Uh, and we determined at the time, and this is about 15 years ago, that it takes about 73 square meters of plant production, and a lot of it was wheat and soybeans and, and you know, staples, uh, rice, wheat and soybeans, that sort of thing. But 73 square meters per person uh, to, for all of the life support requirements. And that was driven entirely by food. If you, if you grow enough food for one person, then you have double the CO2 scrubbing, the oxygen generation, and the fresh water recycling capabilities of the plant system uh, than, than that crew member needs. So food drives it. We've, we've since learned that, uh, you know, driven that number down. And that's been the mission in biological life support research agendas around the world. Uh, the mission is to drive that 73 square meters per person down. Uh, because that represents the mass and energy cost of life support. And I think we're down around 50 or 60 now based on improvements uh, in energy uh, with LED lighting, high efficiency um, LED lighting um, and, and mass. Um, we got the pressure down. We did a lot of work in the early years <clears throat> on pressure in our facility. Uh, if you can reduce the atmospheric pressure of the life support system, then that you necessarily reduce its mass, the structural mass of the system. So you can consider low mass inflatable structures uh, that don't require full earth atmosphere. So we, we've made a lot of progress and I think we're down around 50 or 60 square meters per person, but that's still a lot. So this research that you're doing, um, I know about 10 years ago, we collaborated on an NSERC collaborative research and development project called Entice, which was innovative technologies and challenging environments. And I recall we built some serious research hardware together. Can you tell our listeners about this hardware and what you've been using it for? Well, we were, we were mostly uh, starting to look then at LED lighting. Uh, we developed, we, we worked with a company from Norway, which has since uh, moved a significant portion of its operations to Canada, uh, Intervision Light Systems. And uh, we, we developed a lamp that, uh, uh, that could generate over, you know, five times the intensity of the sun inside one of our chambers. And I remember testing that. Uh, we had to wear welder's goggles to test it. <laughs> and uh, we have since improved that lamp. Um, it's a water-cooled lamp, of course, to have that much energy in a small space. And we have improved it to the point where it's now something like seven or eight times the intensity of the sun. But the new improvement, uh, we have never turned it on full blast uh, because <laughs> we lost our welder's goggles in the lab. <laughs> nobody nobody was had the guts to turn the damn thing on full blast. <laughs> So you're using that to, to look at uh, how plants interact with light and improving the, the recipe of different wavelengths? That, that was the origin of our sort of space exploration agenda at Guelph. And uh, it, we've gone on then to, uh, you know, to develop all kinds of uh, technologies out of that basic fundamental requirement to jam stuff in a small space and make it work. 
you've almost single-handedly built this field of research in Canada. Many of your graduates have, have gone on to great success. Can you describe some of the work that's come out of your group? Uh, that's, I, I guess I should have made a list before we started here. <laughs> um, I get a lot of really good people uh, working in this, uh, in, and I've had people stay with me um, you know, for over 20 years in terms of the technical staff. Uh, uh, Jamie Lawson and Teresa and Mike Stasiak are sort of the core of, uh, of what we do here and, and maintaining. But Tom Graham uh, came as a PhD student and, and, uh, and a postdoc and then went off to NASA and spent three years there as a research fellow. He's now back as a uh, as a full-time faculty he's got the most recent faculty position uh, in the controlled environment area um, matt bamsey of course uh, who uh, who did a phd in, in my program and then went to florida um, worked with rob and annalisa rob furl and annalisa paul and then uh, uh, went off to germany had a Marie curie fellowship uh, with the German Space Agency and worked with Daniel Schubert and uh, did a lot of the, actually he worked on a project we had, he and Tom Graham uh, were up in the in the Arctic at the Devon Island Mars Analog Greenhouse, the Arthur C. Clarke Mars Greenhouse on Devon Island. And then uh, while he was in Germany, he uh, was a great deal of the ground management of the Eden ISS project where we put a food production system in the Antarctic uh, in collaboration with the German Space Agency and a, and a long list of a dozen other institutions and industry partners. So, and that still happened, that's still operational, although the funding ran out for our end, but uh, the, there are still growing tomatoes down there in the Antarctic for the German Space Agency. That's pretty cool stuff. You've also had some commercial spin-offs that have been successful. I think there's a, a living wall group. Right. That that was actually the very first science project, I guess, we did under the in the context of, of atmosphere management. Uh, we were mostly concerned about ethylene, uh, but you know, carbon dioxide and oxygen, uh, the general um, life support gases of, of interest, but ethylene uh, can accumulate when you have a lot of plant material. Now, be before you move on, ethylene is a, a compound that causes plants to age or... and, and die. It can, you know, if it gets to pretty high levels, uh, it, it it can wipe them out. Um, it, it's it's a it's a uh, sort of a growth regulator kind of um, uh, compound. It's a trace hydrocarbon in it. And it's pretty, but it's a very powerful growth regulator. You only need a little teeny squirt of it in the in the atmosphere, and it messes up uh, how plants. I mean, that's why uh, that that's what your your mother does when she puts the tomatoes in a bag on the on the windowsill. The the ripening fruit naturally gives off ethylene, and if you put it in a bag, then the ethylene accumulates and accelerates the ripening, so that you get to eat the tomato. Or if you import bananas from South America in the wintertime. They come here and they're just as hard as a nut, um, but you hang them up in a locker here in the Loblaws food terminal over here in Cambridge and uh, close the door and gas them with ethylene. And that makes the bananas uh, ripen hmm. uh, so that you, you know, they turn from green to yellow. <clears throat> so uh, th those are the applications of ethylene, but in a life support system, 
if it accumulates beyond some very, very trace levels, it can have disastrous effects uh, on the space station Mir back in the mid 90s when the Russians and the Americans had some experiments with wheat. Uh, Frank Salisbury collaborated with the Russians and did some wheat experiments on Mir and the, the wheat grew, uh, looked great, came back to earth, uh, opened up the seed pods, no seeds. Uh, and that was because of ethylene. The average ethylene concentration over that period, when they look back at the, uh, the uh, GC history, gas chromatography history, um, was about 1.2 parts per million, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, but that's one point, that's 1,200 parts per billion and plants start reacting to ethylene concentrations around about 50 to 80, certainly less than 100 parts per billion. So when you're at 1,200, uh, surprise, surprise, you have a disaster with your reproductive systems. Wow, that's cool stuff. So, I mean, you've done some really cool things. What, what are some of the What's the coolest thing you've done? Is it, is it the Houghton Crater stuff? Well, that, that had its moments. I was never allowed to go there because it cost too darn much to send me up there as a tourist. You had to be up there with a hammer and a, and a screwdriver or you weren't allowed. But you, you mentioned, and I forgot, you mentioned the, uh, the biological air filtration. We, we, we're looking at atmosphere management in closed spaces. And what spun out of that was... Uh, what's called biological air filtration. So that, that was eventually commercialized under the auspices of uh, the Ontario Centers of Excellence. Uh, they they um, provided a grant uh, to one of my grad students, uh, actually a postdoc at the time, Al Darlington, and, and he, established, he set up a company then that commercialized this technology in domestic applications. So, uh, office buildings especially uh, the canada life building was our test venue back in the day so this is back in the early 90s and uh, since then the the company uh, the company that al founded was eventually bought by a bigger company which is you know the way of it the way it goes and uh, it's now called ned law living walls uh, and it's part of the walden roofing family of companies um, Ned Law is Walden spelled backwards, so uh, Ned Law <laughs> Living Walls uh, here in Breslau, Ontario, just down the road, uh, still operates. In fact, we have just uh, set up a, a collaboration with that company. They're having, you know, a few technical issues with some of their larger biofilters in the local area, and they want us to help them um, come up with management strategies, uh, you know, especially the horticulture and, and water management strategies based on some of the uh, technology that we can put in the field on their behalf uh, and the expertise from my team. So we've just started up a new uh, collaboration with that company and, and have collaborated with them over the years on a number of uh, research projects. But that, that was uh, you know, one of the more successful commercialization opportunities that grew out of our program. So these are, are basically walls full of different plants that that filter the air and they're decorative. Right. It, it, it's uh, since it's indoors, it's relatively low light. So you, you would choose uh, understory 
um, you know, tropical plants kind of thing, in conventional house plants. At one time, we thought the kind of plant mattered in terms of its contribution to atmosphere management. It doesn't. And, and the other thing is, uh, and, and this is tough for most, because the media doesn't help us much. Um, plants don't clean the air. They have the metabolic chemistry for photosynthesis, so they can suck up CO2 and spit out oxygen and fresh water, but they, don't, they have a hard time with xylene and, and methyl ethyl ketone and you know, all the toxic chemistry that we associate with poor quality indoor air is not food for the metabolic process of a green plant. However, <laughs> green plants <clears throat> leak photosynthetic products out of their roots, so carbohydrates, sugars, uh, they have root exudates of a whole range of chemistry that services and supports the microbial community in the root zone. And so we've created uh, the root zone on a, on a porous medium so that there's a lot of biofilm associated with the root zone. And the microbial community s survives in this biofilm and the, the biofilter is a wall built on a porous medium and we're giving all the scientific all the technical specifications away here but that's okay <laughs> so that this porous medium that's full of roots that are leaking um, sustenance into the microbial community that lives in the biofilm and then you start sucking in with uh, high volume low or, or I guess just large volume air movement, but not very fast, you know, big, slow, lazy air movement through the substrate. The, the chemistry that we associate with poor quality indoor air, like xylene and, and uh, you know, the stuff that comes off of paint, toluene, et cetera, they're highly soluble formaldehyde, highly soluble compounds. And once they dissolve in the biofilm, then the microbes, uh, that do have metabolic processes that, to consume those, uh, metabolize those compounds into CO2 and water and, uh, uh, and the process. Is, I mean, that's kind of the way the planet works. This isn't rocket science, I must say. It, but uh, the, the misconception that, that the media has given to and, and, in, and still persist in doing so, um, that green plants clean the air, you know, there are even pod webcasts or podcasts you can see from these uh, snake oil salesmen, I'll call them, um, who, who claim that, you know, you have a dozen potted plants in your living room and, and you're going to live forever. It cleans the air. Well, it's, it doesn't work that way. The root zone and the microbes that live there off the root exudates. So the green plants are absolutely necessary. They provide the sustenance that sustains the diverse microbial ecosystem that is actually the machine in air filtration. Uh, and, and we just create a technical context um, and configuration of the root zone with a large surface area and a lot of biofilm. Uh, that is the machine that cleans the air. Hmm. Yeah, that was, that was a, a shock to me when I found out about that as well as, wow. It's, it's the microbes. It's, that's, that's the keys is the microbes. And, and that's, you know, the soil, that's what soil is, is, is a microbial ecosystem, right? Exactly. And microbes win. I mean, they're going to get us eventually. <laughs> so as with any um, profit of change, you've been, I think, more successful internationally than at home. Can you describe some of your um, 
international projects and how your group has, has kind of been leading the world in, in abroad? Well, we, we're as a unique, a relatively unique, I hope it doesn't say that way, but as a unique uh, life support research venue in Canada, uh, you know, there, there are slowly but surely being um, groups that are starting to take on like McGill, Mark Lefsred's uh, group, etc. There are others who are starting to pick away at some of the technical challenges here. Uh, I think the work we've had with the Melissa project, uh, Melissa is the European Space Agency's life support program. Uh, we joined it as a partner in um, 1997 and and have been collaborating and participating and I guess contributing the higher plant, the, the food production side of the life support system that Melissa represents. Melissa is largely a recycling uh, system, uh, you know, based on recycling all the carbon, oxygen, water, nitrogen, etc. Uh, and we come along uh, with the higher plant expertise and contributed the so-called higher plant compartment of the Melissa Loop. So we built a system for them, installed it in Barcelona. Nice place to visit. Uh, yeah, 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 it is. The university in Barcelona, the Autonomous University of Barcelona, uh, is the home of the Melissa Pilot Plant. And we have a chamber installed there and we provided personnel for a few years to operate it and, and do the tech transfer, if you will, uh, from the, the Canadian um, life support program, the SALSA program, to the Melissa project. And we've also worked quite a bit with NASA, of course, our, our good friends at Kennedy Space Center, where Tom did a postdoc and a research fellowship there uh, for, for a few years. Um, the, Ray Wheeler, who's the head of that uh, life sciences group at Kennedy, is a, is a close friend and, uh, and, and actually with me is the author of Getting Barley on the List of of, of uh, candidate crops for human space exploration. It's a very important piece. It, it, it took me almost 20 years to get that to get that resolved, but uh, that, that <laughs> you know that story. Yeah, and and the Barcelona angle is also very nice because I remember we were at a conference on life support in Barcelona the year Spain won the World Cup, and we were there for the uh, finals, and they had this huge. Uh, set up in the in the main square in Barcelona, like a million people watching big screens. I remember that was a that was a fun time. So, how is the future looking for advanced life support? What's what's on your agenda? Well, uh, the the Canadian Space Agency has ha, has had a lot of um, you know sort of interactions with the general scientific community in Canada for the last year or so. Uh, the the phase zero project on uh, on putting plants on the moon on a on a lander uh, that we're working on right now that that has uh, you know plans to go phase zero one two three etc we will land uh, plants on the moon in the next probably two or three years we will have we will participate with a lander uh, there's going to be so many landers that the options are are many and varied, and so surely one of them will have a little space for our for our little um, crop of barley on on the space on the surface of the moon. 
Um, so I'm looking forward to that happening very quickly. Um, there's also a, a, a recent uh, call for topical team. So this is very reminiscent of what you and I participated in as the discipline working group. Um, they're now calling it topical teams and the food production topical team is one that is currently a, 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 you know, calling for proposals. Uh, so we've, we're, we're putting that together and hopefully we'll have some contribution there. Even if we don't win that, uh, that proposal, um, there, you know, whoever does, uh, will hopefully, uh, start looking for some additional contributions to their discussions from guys like us. Yeah. I really, uh, like the idea of developing technologies and science for space applications that have obvious and direct, um, secondary applications here on earth. And if, if we can build it here on earth, then we can build it on the moon and vice versa. It's... Right. Food, food production, uh, it is probably the rich, richest source of, you know, the technologies and research required to, to grow plants for, for life support on Mars or the moon, for example, is easily in my mind, at least maybe I'm biased, but <laughs> the richest source of technology transfer to terrestrial applications that I can possibly imagine. It, it, it is, you know, potentially an economic engine for a country like Canada that'll service us for the next three to 500 years if we last that long. Well, I hope to. <laughs> so we're coming to the end of our, our time slot and uh, I have one final question for you. What's your rarest scotch? Well, I have a 30 year old Dewar's and I'm, uh, it's a blend, which I, which is almost sacrilege, but, uh, I was in a, a duty-free store somewhere in Europe or I can't remember, maybe it was in China or Hong Kong. Um, and they, they, I got to taste this, uh, otherwise I would never have bought it. I mean, it's a blend after all, <laughs> but, but it's a 30 year old blend and it is quite remarkable. I, I guess. It's, it's my rarest is probably my most expensive too. Um, but the, the best I guess would be, uh, and you got to get into the, you know, 20 plus year old ones. Uh, I had a 25 year old Nokendu, um, which is a space side. It's a, it's a very tiny little distillery, uh, but an extremely unique bottle. And I had this 25 year old that I picked up in Paris at a, uh, there's a store there that sells only single malt whiskey, um, glorious place. <laughs> and, uh, I, I went back there last year, I guess. No, last year didn't exist on the, on my calendar. The year before I went back there and to try and re and, and repatriate that bottle to my shelf and they didn't have any, and they don't make it anymore. They only did it once. No can do only did a 25 year old once. So I had to relegate myself to the 21 and the 18. Both oh, are no. stellar, stellar. Uh, I highly recommend them unless you go into stores that are in my area and you only see one of them. If you buy it, I'll, <laughs> I'll kick you. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good. Well, thank you for, for joining us 
on the rational view and sharing your research with us. Uh, it's been a, a great pleasure to, to revisit uh, old times and, and see what's going on in, in ALS. Thanks very much. Okay, Al. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view.